This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome to episode number 287 of literary tracks we are your official star trek books and comics podcast here on the trek fm network and i am bruce gibson and with me as he always 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 is dan gunther Hey, how's it going? You know, you don't have to grimace when you say always. <laughs> always. Always, always. You can't get rid of me. Yeah. I'm like a mismatched sock that sits in the back of your drawer. You just never be rid of me. Oh my gosh, my wife got on me the other day about my socks. She walked in the bedroom, <laughs> I was laying on the bed, and she goes, you have a hole in your sock. And then she calls my daughters in to show them. And she's like, I've been on them for to get rid of their socks that have holes in them. And now I see you with holes in your sock. What's wrong with this family? We can afford socks. And I'm like, I didn't even know I had a hole in the sock. <laughs> now I'm just being ambushed. What's going on here? <laughs> and now I'm talking about it on a podcast where millions of people are listening. <laughs> millions? Really? Millions. Okay. Yeah, millions. millions. Yes. Absolutely. Millions, millions. millions listen to literary tracks. <laughs> they don't read the books, but they listen to the books. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, all you millions out there, this is a good episode to listen to because we are now going into the Destiny trilogy. I'm so excited about this. We're going to hit book one tonight. And this is Gods of Night. It's written by David Mack. The whole trilogy is written by David Mack. And I mean, I've been like waiting for this moment all year. Yeah, uh, this is the culmination of a lot of reading, a lot of episodes. But yeah, we're finally here, finally into the Destiny trilogy. And I think we're going to have a really good discussion. So I'm really excited about this. Yes. And we're going to bring somebody into the discussion that used to be a host on the show. That's Ooh. all I'm saying. That's your little hint right there. Hmm. Oh, gee, that narrows it down to two people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, you and I both used to be hosts on this show. We still are, but that doesn't change the fact that we used to be. It might just be one of us. That's true. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's 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 my holy sock. That's what it is. That's the guest. <laughs> Perfect. But before we do that, hey, we have four new books coming in 2020. Yes, this was announced at Destination Star Trek Birmingham the weekend of October 26th. 
And these aren't novels. These are books. So keep that in mind, because the first one is The Art of Star Trek Discovery. And it's written by Paula Block and Terry Erdman. I'm really excited about this one. I... I, I love their fiction, but I love their nonfiction behind the scenes stuff even more. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I'm excited about this book because I've been really fascinated as to why uh, they've gone certain directions with art and discovery. So I'm hoping some of that's explained there. But the art of discovery is beautiful. So just even if it's just a picture book, I would be happy with that. <laughs> but Terry did tweet out about this saying, finally, what we've been doing in the dark for the past year announced today in Birmingham, England, although this isn't the final cover. So the cover that's out there today as this recording is not the final, even mm-hmm. though I love the cover. It's, it's a great cover. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, interesting. I, I, I do love new cover reveals, so I'm really looking forward to see, seeing what the cover is, especially since it's the art of Star Trek discovery. So uh, I'm expecting a really great cover but also what's between the covers I'm expecting is going to be really, really great. Uh, yes. I want to see some um, behind the scenes stuff about the uniforms and the design of them and that sort of thing, because I've got it in my head recently because I don't do enough already. I've gotten it in my head that I'm going to start trying to uh, make cosplay items and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I think the discovery uniform is, uh, very advanced and not what I'm going to start with, but I would love to see some, uh, some, you know, behind the scenes design stuff for that. You know what the easiest cosplay to do on Star Trek is? Hmm. Dress up for a Beta Z wedding. There you go. Yep. Um, <laughs> to blatantly steal a joke from Dayton Ward, I actually tried on my Betazoid uh, wedding suit the other day and newsflash it still fits so that's good that's great yeah i hope you took it to the dry cleaners (laughs) (laughs) i I wash Uh, it regularly yeah (laughs) oh good uh so now this book has behind the scenes stuff and it does have interviews with the cast and crew and their set photography concept art and storyboards so i think we're going to get a lot of good stuff and this does cover the first two seasons the book is coming out april 28th shortly before the third season comes out. So, which we still don't have a date on what that third season releases, mm-hmm. but this will be out before that, of course. So we're not ending it there. Ladies and gentlemen, June, 2020, we're going to celebrate the 25th anniversary of star Trek Voyager. And there's a new hardcover book coming out from hero collector and author. Ben Robinson is the one behind star Trek Voyager, a celebration. And he had tweeted out saying that this is the greatest Star Trek convention ever in a book form. I like the way he said that. That's actually That's good. interesting. Yeah. And confirmed hmm. that the above cover artwork is a placeholder, which will be updated pre-release with a new design, which will add Jerry Ryan seven of nine. Yeah. Oh, Cause right okay, now yeah. it shows all the principal cast with, except for seven of nine. Yeah, because I read that and I hadn't really looked at the cover and I was wondering why he singled her out. But yeah, seeing this, it looks like the they have the whole crew on the bottom except Seven of Nine. So that's interesting. So here a Collector and Ben Robinson, these are he's the guy behind the Star Trek, the official Starships collection. So 
interesting. I'm really I'm, I'm curious to see what this book exactly is about, because they've been putting out a lot of books about the starships and that sort of thing. But this seems to be a very different type of book than what they've done before. So interesting. Yeah, hmm. it should be interesting for sure. What could well, it uh, I don't know. We'll have to wait till June and we'll review it here on the show. I How's think that? We'll, we'll definitely do that. So earlier we mentioned about the art of Star Trek Discovery, which is a Titan book. Well, Titan's coming out with another book, and that's in July, July 14th of 2020. And it is the autobiography of Catherine Janeway. Now, I'm excited about this because we've done the uh, we've done other autobiography books. We've done Kirk. We've done Picard. We're still waiting on Mr. Spock, which mm-hmm. I think we heard is coming out next year. Coming out in September of next year. So... Okay, so the Spock one originally was going to come out last year, then it was going to come out this year, and now it's coming out next year. And interestingly, it'll be coming out after this Janeway one, which has just been announced. So, boy, I'm this Spock book. I'm, I'm what? What's in it? He's what jumping don't they through want time. Us to see? <laughs> he keeps jumping through the Guardian of Forever, and we can't catch up to him. <laughs> <laughs> that must be he? it. But now this book's going to be cool because it's edited by Una McCormick. And when we say edited is because when these books come out, they're written by the character, but then they're edited by an author. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. So all of the previous ones, including the Spock one, which is still yet to come, uh, have been edited. And I'm doing air quotes around that because you guys can't see me. Uh, They've been edited by David A. Goodman. Uh, this one, Una McCormick, man, I am so excited about this. I think of all of these announcements and there's still one more to come. This is the one I was the most excited about because a, I love Una McCormick. I love her writing and her work and B I'm doing a rewatch of Voyager right now and I'm enjoying it a lot more than I have in the past. So this is just hitting at the exact right time for me to be really excited about it. So yeah, I can't wait to see what this one's all about. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. It's going to be a lot of fun. And there was a book called Mosaic written by Jerry Taylor, who was you know one of the people behind creating the character of Janeway, which is kind of her backstory. And we get a lot of her childhood in it. So I'm just wondering if there's going to be elements of that in this book or if this will go in a different direction. But knowing Una, I would think she's familiar with the book I just mentioned. So we'll mm-hmm. see. Yeah, I'm curious about that as well, because I know, like, for the example, when we talked to David Goodman about the Picard one, he very specifically did not reference any of the novels that had talked about his time on the Stargazer and that sort of thing. Uh, But, you know, Una being tied a little more closely to the pocketbooks line, it would be interesting to see if she has a different approach. Right. Yeah, that should be interesting. We'll definitely have to get her on the show to talk about it. Oh, imagine that. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> well, there's another book by Titan Books that's coming out, and it is The Artistry of Dan Curry. And uh, this should be really good. Again, you know, more about art, v- very visual book. And this is this book was written by Dan Curry and Ben Robinson, who did the Voyager Celebration book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is, covers 50 years of Trek history by seven-time Emmy Award winner Curry. And it's one of the franchise's most enduring talents, that Dan Curry. Yeah, he's responsible for so much of the look of the 24th century. 
uh, of Star Trek. So, uh, you know, you'll recognize his work. One of my favorite pieces is that kind of um, cutaway of the Klingon showing their inter- its internal anatomy and that sort of thing. Uh, I'd love that. I would love to have a, a piece like that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see a lot of this artwork because I, I get the feeling that there's a lot that he's responsible for that we probably don't even realize that he designed and, and came up with because he designed a lot of the props and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is going to be a really great book to go throughout. I'm literally, I, I gosh, it's like every time we talk about a book, I'm like, Ooh, I think I'm more excited about this one. Then we get to the next one. I'm like, no, I think I'm more excited about this. <laughs> one. <laughs> I can't make up my mind on this, but yeah, this also includes photos and illustrations from his personal collection. And there's also contributions from some very Star Trek cast members like Michael Dorn and Scott Bakula. And so this book is set to be released on September 1st, 20. 20 and we'll cover it here on the show i imagine we will 2020 i can't believe it's going to be 2020 that's crazy i know i keep hearing barbara walters in 2020 anyway (laughs) uh speaking of covering we're going to cover a comic star trek year five number seven so let's get that book out and talk about that issue because we've got bright eyes in here we keep mm-hmm. revis- revisiting Bright Eyes. I'm not going to sing. I might <laughs> sing later in the episode. I'm not going to sing right now. <laughs> okay. No problem. So this issue starts off on the planet of Tholia, where the Tholians are from. They're in the capital of the Tholian embassy. The population is unknown. The location is unknown. And their capabilities are unknown. So the assembly is meeting with what they call a trespasser. But this trespasser looks like a Tholian, but yet they say that it's taking the form of them. Mm-hmm. I was a little confused at first. Like, is this a yeah. changeling? <laughs> a changeling, maybe, or maybe wearing some sort of suit or something. I'm not sure. Um, he's a different color than the rest yeah. of the Tholians, which are all that kind of golden orange color. And he's kind of this... Uh, shiny metallic gray color almost so yeah and it it looks more like a a a uniform like metal yeah it could be or or like you say he could be a shapeshifter or or something like that as well but uh interesting and we don't we don't get a lot of answers as to who this person is so i think this is going to be something i mean it's definitely going to be something that plays out in future issues but what I think is cool is these Tholians in the assembly. They're huge. Yeah, I, I like that because Bright Eyes, who's kind of a young Tholian, we see as this smaller Tholian. And then most of the ones we see are kind of these mid-sized ones, it turns out. Because, yeah, these elders, they're, they're these huge hulking Tholians with like extra crystal growths kind of coming out of them as well. I love the design of these guys. Yeah, it really gives a whole new dimension to Tholians, that they're just not this one-looking species-like thing. These are totally, like, giant monsters. It's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. But apparently this imposter, this trespasser, is trying to convince them that the Federation and Starfleet are their enemies and they need to attack them. And he shows them a vision of the enterprise. And he's like, I told you, you can't trust these people. And they've captured one of our own, which is of course, bright eyes. And so if we jump ahead, we see Kirk and Spock who are now able to communicate 
with Bright Eyes. And Bright Eyes is telling him about the dark of their planet and how the death came from the skies and attacked them. And in the Tholians, there's unity, but in this case, there wasn't because they were being attacked and it was cold and they looked up to the heavens and they looked up to the skies and saw the attack. And the funny thing about this is that he mentions later that they feel when there's, you know, when there's a fracture among their kind, they feel it throughout themselves. Mm -hmm. So those who are attacking them would feel this fracture, but that didn't stop them. Yeah. So I have a theory that's just a total guess because we see this trespasser imitating, taking on the form of the Tholians. I'm wondering if whoever attacked this Tholians planet, this colony, if they were disguised as Tholians as well and weren't actually Tholians, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Like maybe yeah, it's that the makes same sense. guy's species kind of setting things in motion or something. They're fake Tholians. And so... They cause they're they're fake Tholians or Folians, if you will. <laughs> they're Folians that set this whole thing up so that the Tholians actually start their own civil war, essentially, from what mm-hmm. or, has happened here. Yeah, something like that. But they seem to be wanting to blame the Federation as well. So if they're the same people, maybe they're not. I don't know. Yeah, this is confusing. Know. We don't get a lot of answers here for sure. No, we don't. But we do get trapped from a Tholian web. Yeah, these guys do do webs very well. <laughs> they do webs. So, you know, the Enterprise was heading back to Federation space and they were going uh, at warp speed. And all of a sudden they got trapped by this Tholian re- web, which Spock says, oh, last time we were lucky. But this time I don't think we will be because the structure is a little different from what we uh, experienced before. Last time it was a cage. This time it's a net. And mm-hmm. so uh, Kirk asks Sulu to come with him because they find that there's another ship trapped in this web and they can't communicate with it because their communication system and other systems are down. And of course, Scotty's working to try to fix those. So Kirk and, and Sulu do a Star Trek into darkness type thing and they go out <laughs> into space and, you know, they're shooting off towards another ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I hadn't thought of that when we when I first read this, but yeah, it is kind of like Star Trek Into Darkness. They're um in their spacesuits zooming over to this alien vessel and uh Kirk and like they they kind of get off target a little bit and they kind of end up swinging around and uh Sulu ends up getting pulled into this ship by um somebody this kind of um aquatic life form of some kind and and kirk follows him into the ship and they meet up with this uh really cool design of a of kind of a fishy amphibious type life form yeah they get in there and they're like does this place smell fishy to you uh (laughs) no no that didn't happen that would have been a no gold key comic that's not this but they yeah they get to this aquatic looking alien named aval and that says welcome to my sea and uh their ship was only had what was it six crew members yeah and five of them are died and this one's the only one that's left and so then they decide you know we can use this ship with the water and uh we'll take a vol off of it and we'll take him back to our ship and then we can explode this ship the water 
will expand and freeze and break the web so we can escape out. Mm-hmm. Which I thought and was kind of interesting. Yeah. They say it's kind of a low tech solution, which is kind of cool. So, yeah. And at the same time, back on the enterprise, the Tholian bright eyes is freaking out and they call Spock and Spock, of course, tries to mind meld and then, ah, and he burns his hand and falls down and he says, such fear. They know doctor there. They, they're here. And my favorite thing about this whole comic is the last page because yes. they're here. They come out of the dark. It's Ooh. all these little Tholians walking down the web, like little Ooh. spiders. It's so creepy. <laughs> it's so it's creepy. So cool. <laughs> I love it. I want to, I want to meet the writer who thought this up and I want to meet the artist who drew this because it's so creepy and it's so cool. What, what we've seen of the Tholians. And of course we didn't see a full body Tholian until Star Trek enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they are kind of spider-like and it makes sense. I never made the connection to think, oh, they're kind of spider-like and they do webs. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I ever like put two, two together on that? I don't know. But I love how they're crawling down the, the web. That is oh. so cool. And and like it, it's it's a still it, it's it's a comic it's not but you can feel them moving and skittering down the web towards Kirk and Sulu and this alien here, like oh it's so good. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm anxious to get to number eight. So I guess we'll get to issue number eight next month. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. So that being said, we've got some feedback in the Babel conference about our episode where we covered. The motion picture novelization, 40th anniversary edition. And we had Larry Nemechek on that episode. So uh, I think maybe we got one or two comments, Dan, it looks like. A, a couple, yeah. There's, there's, um, there's a, yeah, a couple uh, comments. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just a comment. Yeah. Mine says 48 comments. So we're not going to read through them all. We're just going to kind of go through some. Highlights. So Tim Hans says, still own my paperback copy from 1980 after all these years. And there's a picture of it too. And that's pretty good condition. It's better than the condition Mm -hmm. I have. I bought mine at a used bookstore and it's more beat up than that. I have a used bookstore copy as well uh, from 1979, which means it's older than me. Uh, And it's still in pretty good shape, but not as good shape as yours, Tim. That looks really good. Jane Boyle says, as mentioned in the podcast, the novelizations were really useful for explaining things that I might have missed or not understood. I was disappointed when they decided not to release a novelization of Star Trek Beyond, since I've got all the others. Also, although I do watch Star Trek, I'm not really a film or television watcher. I'm a reader. Novelizations like this one allow me to experience the film in my chosen format. There's an added advantage that it's easy to block visual changes that you don't like. Although I wasn't bothered by the Klingon look in the motion picture, it was a film, they had a lot more money, and they were still obviously Klingon, I loathed the new uniforms. When I read the book, I see the crew in the proper uniforms. That's a really good point. I love the fact that books allow you to kind of create whatever visual style you want. I know a lot of people who don't necessarily like Star Trek Discovery that much or the look of it, but read The Enterprise War, were able to picture Jeffrey Hunter as as Pike and and that kind of aesthetic, the cage aesthetic for that book. So yeah, that's, that's a really cool thing about books. You kind of 
create the scenery in your own head. I may have mentioned this on a previous episode uh, some time ago, but when I first started reading Star Trek books, I would picture TOS uniforms slightly different and the bridge Mm. a little more updated in my mind. So I did not imagine or picture it like you saw exactly on the show. So when uh, the first JJ verse movie came out and then uniforms were a little different, I was like, that's kind of like what I was doing in my mind, making them a little different. So, Oh, very cool. (laughs) So Christopher Bacchus's the whole disco thing about it changing things compared to TMP is disingenuous. TMP was the first leap into creating continuity. Disco is doing it 50 years in and disrupting everything for the sake of it. And Larry Nemechik says, how so? And Christopher says, if you're going to set something in and around TOS era, it should be treated like a period piece, just like it was on Deep Space Nine and Enterprise with the Defiant. Now, Christopher, I know I totally get what you're saying. I don't have a problem with it, but I can definitely understand your point. You know, if you're going to do a movie about World War One, it's a period piece. You want everything to look like that. If you look at TOS in the same manner, even though it's fictional, you want everything to look like it did on TOS and not make these other changes where, well, it's kind of like the uniform, but it's not exactly like the uniform. I don't have an issue with it, but I totally get your point. Yeah, I and I understand where you're coming from. I don't agree myself, but I mean that's totally okay. I definitely understand that viewpoint. So, um yeah, it's to me the visuals are kind of apart from the continuity of the story, which to me is the important part, but I also totally respect and understand that for other people, uh the look is more important. And obviously it's not for me if I just said earlier that I used to picture the uniforms differently and the bridge differently. So. <laughs> yeah, you kind of uh, kind of put your stake in the ground there. <laughs> <laughs> so Matthew Bell says, I love the novelization for the pure Roddenberry-isms it has on show, discussed at length in this fine podcast. Well, thank you. I don't know how fine our podcast is, but thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, there are definitely sure signs of Roddenberry's hand all over this book uh, in various ways. And I'll probably leave it at that. Uh, We covered that pretty well, like you said on the show. And Bob Smith says, Star Trek, the motion picture, the book, a.k.a. What if Nomad landed at a fondue party orgy in the suburbs of Pasadena, circa 1976 you know it just dawned on me i don't think we've ever said fondue party or orgy on the show ever before (laughs) i don't think that we have um star trek's first key party interesting okay i see where you're coming from (laughs) there's there's a long post bob i can't read all of this i'm just going to kind of jump down because if anything anybody wants to know more about that go read his post because there's a lot there, but you did have a few comments where you say that something that you noticed during many times that you watched the movie is that Kirk is a jerk and is absolutely (laughs) that Kirk is a jerk and is absolutely useless throughout the entire film. Well, that's because he's not at an orgy, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave that one alone. In all seriousness, uh, Bob says, he literally accomplishes nothing except for stealing the ship from Decker and promptly almost destroying the entire crew. 
Decker and Spock are the only ones doing anything productive here. Kirk waltzes in, acts like a tool, screws up repeatedly, and is happy as a clam at the end of the at the end of the day because he gets his ship back. And by the way, there's a lot more there. I just want to comment on that. I can actually see what you're talking about. This actually, I, I feel like Kirk does a bit more than that in the movie in the book, but I definitely also see where you're coming from. That like. Yeah, he kind of does put his foot in his mouth a few times and Decker pulls their bacon out of the fire. So it's kind of a good point. I actually can see this. Yes. Justin Ozer says, great discussion. I really enjoyed reading the novelization and loved the background and footnotes that are in the book. It gave me an even greater appreciation of the movie. I'm right there with you. I really liked those footnotes and the kind of uh, making it feel like an actual in-universe text. I thought that was really cool. And the best novelizations really do that. They give you a greater appreciation of the source material. So definitely agree with you on that point as well. And Oz Trekkie says, great episode again, guys. Larry has so much Trek history floating around in his head. I always like novelizations as they provide more depth and backstory to what you see on screen. I have read in a novel that to honor the Enterprise, Starfleet changed everyone's insignia to the enterprises i believe the novel was federation but i'm not 100 percent sure of that this will now bug me until i find it hmm. Hmm. i don't know it could have been federation i i don't know could have been i know it's mentioned in uh one of the reference books mr scott's guide to the enterprise we we talked about that a bit on the show and then confirmed it afterwards uh, it might have been in a novel as well, and maybe Federation. It's been a long time since I read it, so I don't remember. Well, Oz Trekkie, let us know if you do find it, if it's in Federation or something else. Love to know the answer to that. Definitely. And I also would love to know what we think of Destiny Book One. So let's jump into the feature. Oh, I can't wait to find out what I think about it. I want to know what you think of it, too. <laughs> So on today's feature, we're going to talk about Star Trek Destiny, book one, Gods of Night. I don't know why I'm holding it up because none of you can see me doing it, but I'm holding it up like you can because I'm very excited to talk about this trilogy and with us to do the trilogy, well, to do book one, at least for this show, is a former literary treks host. That is Matthew Rushing. Matt, how you doing? Well, I was going to be on for the entire trilogy, uh, and then I was told that I was only needed for one episode. Now, uh, okay, I mean, I guess if it's only one, I'll at least start it off. Exactly. I prefer to think of it that, you know, we can't allow your awesomeness to spread over multiple episodes. People need just a smaller dose because they'll be overwhelmed <laughs> by the greatness that is Matt Rushing. Well, um, I will pay you uh, that PayPal when we're done, Dan. Um, I appreciate that. That was really sweet of you. Um, but no, it is it is great to be back. I can't believe it's been so long. Um, you know, I feel like there's always so much going on. But I mean, Destiny to be at this series. Uh, you know, I remember reading this when it first came out, and I mean, this is the series that just blew it all wide open. Um, and I think when we think of trek lit as we know it today i think this is the series that really cemented that so it's you know it it's a it's a big series like this is a monumental task that uh you know our friend david mack had um and it's just 
it's a great i mean it still holds up that's the crazy thing yeah it's really i i remember when this came out it was such a monumental thing and to this day there's so many people on message boards on reddit asking you know i want to read some good treklet where should i start and i see this as an answer again and again and again it's really resonated through the star trek literary universe uh, in a way that i don't think any other books have in the star trek lit line <laughs> that i can think of yeah, even to the point that when I sometimes refer to the post-Nemesis books, I call them the Destiny Timeline. Mm-hmm. Because I think these books really bring it all together. The The beginning of the post-Nemesis books kind of lead perfectly into this epic trilogy. And then what happens after this is affected by this trilogy. And I just like the name Destiny. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah, Destiny Timeline. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting because obviously you can dive right in to this series and it's fine. Um, but you know the way that David Mack constructs this storyline, like it's really best if you had spent all of that time reading the other books. I mean, starting with the Deep Space Nine all the way to here because he's using all these little pieces of things. Um, you know, you guys talked about the time two books as well. You know, there's parts of that in here. I mean, uh, and then of course everything that led up to this, you know, with Borg, 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 Q, Borg, Borg, uh, you know, uh, so they were really, you know, trying to find a way to unify and bring everything together in one massive trilogy. And I think, you know, it, it, it's definitely something you could just hand to somebody and say, hey, read this. But, you know, like Endgame, like I don't think you get much out of Endgame if you haven't seen the 22 other films, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's okay, but you're not going to get half of it. So I feel like this is meant in much the same way. Um, and I feel like, you know, you have to get to the point where that's okay. Uh, and with this series... You know, I think it's okay to tell people, yeah, you can read it, but man, you'll want to have read at least, I would say, a time to, um, just to kind of give you an idea of what the Star Trek universe is like at this point, because it's moved so far past, you know, Nemesis. That's funny because I didn't so. read a time to when I first read this trilogy. Mm-hmm. I hadn't read it yet, but I had read uh, Greater Than the Sum and some of the Titan books. I had read a few of the post nemesis books, not all of them. The first time I got to this trilogy. Now the beauty of this is there's so many ships and crews involved in the back in the appendix. There are a list of the different crew members and uh, a brief description of their rank and, and what species they are. So that's helpful, not just to those who are new, but to us that read so much. Sometimes I do have to go back and go, wait, who's that? person again or, or what's what's their position on the ship or what ship are they on again because sometimes it's a little much when you've got all these new crew members on different yep. ships yeah i absolutely consulted that more often than i'm comfortable admitting <laughs> can we talk about the the massive uh, circular space station in the room that's not in this series and yes not in a lot of the books leading up to it yeah um so the one knock that I have against the Dex- Destiny series, and I just wanted to get it out of the way because the rest of the time I think it's going to be kind of eff- effusive praise. You know, it's just it's so good. Um, thank you, David Mack. Uh, but the fact that Deep Space Nine at this point is 
like four years, I think, chronologically behind in the universe, yeah. four or five years. They don't really, I mean, obviously, Esri's on the front of this cover, right? But she's the only character in Deep Space Nine that we get, other than mm-hmm. Sam Bowers, who's a book character. So, like, well, except you for know, the first chapter. The first chapter does have Cisco. Well, that and it's Kira. yeah, it's true. Um, but then you never see Cisco again. You neither see Bashir or Brian, like the right. Defiant. Like no, and and it. I think it frustrated me to no end that they had done such a bad job of planning that they hadn't allowed Deep Space Nine to be able to write a few books and just like just catch up. You know, just like write three books that catches them up while you're putting all these other, you know, books leading into this series. Like, why did we need a greater than the sum? We did just give us a Deep Space Nine book instead of that. You know, like, there's like three of those books that are all the same, you know, like uh, Resistance you talked about, you know. Um, you don't need Resistance. It's it's not a book you need. Um, so... Again, just like give us those Deep Space Nine books that would have gotten us to this point. And because it just bothered me to think like Cisco and the Defiant and O'Brien and Bashir, like all of these people would have been involved in this because everybody else is except that they're not. And it just seems like the one glaring. It's yeah, it's like they were in the corner <laughs> in time out. Well, I mean, if I remember correctly at that time. I think the DS9 books were still in year, I'll call it season eight. You know, they were still, weren't they just trying to frame the story around the first year after post DS9 and, and they were going into the second year? So you're right. This, like, it's like the post nemesis books, meaning the TNG books, were jumping ahead faster where they mm-hmm. were trying to keep DS9 more self contained within a year or two after the series telling this big, you know, overarching storyline and then yeah we jumped ahead yeah i was kind of getting ready to argue the point a little bit but now that i really think about it i could have done without resistance and before dishonor like i'll be honest at the risk of piling on (laughs) to those books uh yeah pretty sure fans of janeway would have thought that too (laughs) well we also don't get much voyager in this either I mean, I think yeah, of these books as more of sequels yep. to TNG and Titan for the most mm-hmm. part. Yeah. Yeah, it is It is interesting um, that the main... I mean, obviously, when you're doing a series this big, you have to, to key in on some key characters that you're going to be using. So Esri is one that they made the choice to use, um, which is great with me. You know, I love Esri and I love the Aventine and all that. I always wanted an Aventine series, but it just seems strange to just basically after the the prologue, you never see Cisco again. You never hear anything about Deep Space Nine again, really. Um, you know, there's barely there's not even a mention, you know. Mm-hmm. So and now that could also be where they are in the quadrant that they're far enough away from the rest of things that the Borg haven't even gotten that far yet. So, you know... Yeah, it sounds like most of the action is kind of taking place in the Beta Quadrant. So I I think you've got a point there that, you know, they're a little distance away. But a name drop wouldn't have killed them for sure. Yeah, I mean, even just having the Defiant (laughs) under, you know, uh, somebody's command, you know, like Roe or, uh, you know... um, you know uh 
Kira, come on, like anybody, uh, Cisco, just makes more sense. Now, I think, if I remember correctly, when David or George fills in in Rough Beasts of Empire, he's on the James D. Kirk. um, I think so, Maybe, or it's either him or Elias Vaughn. I can't remember. Anyway, everybody will write me notes like, how do you not know this stuff? How dare you be on literary (laughs) tracks and not know everything? Um, So, yeah, there is that part. Uh, that they end up filling in the backstory for later. But yeah, that's a whole other. I just think that they were so focused on the storyline that they were doing for DS nine. And this was years later that they probably didn't want to do too much connection DS nine because they didn't know what they were going to continue to Mm -hmm. do this series. So the fact that we got Esri is a great bonus. And we did get the first chapter with some reference to, to DS9. There could have been more DS9 in this because the Columbia was discovered in the Gamma Quadrant. So there could have been a good storyline with Deep Space Nine and finding the Columbia, which, of course, the Aventine did, but you could have tied more of that into Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. But I just think they didn't want to go there. And plus, there's already too many crew members. We just said that. yeah well and like you said you know they chose the aventine to be the avatar that you're going to use for the columbia storyline you know um the the connection point like you said you could have used deep space nine but if deep space nine isn't going to really be involved later on you all you need it to be something else that you can move around and the aventine is kind of the perfect place to have that and you know i kind of thought it was really interesting that you start off with Ezri as captain, like, which, you know, you come into this and you're like, what? Yeah. Cause I remember captain? the first time I read this, I was like, uh, is she ready to be captain yet? But they did it so well that the ship was fighting Borg and the captain, the first officer were killed. So naturally she was the next in line. And then that became a permanent position. And mm-hmm. she proved herself well that she is captain material. And of yeah. course with all the Dax lives, I feel like that helps out a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, re- I remember first seeing the cover to this novel and just being thrilled and seeing the captain's pips on Ezri's collar. But again, like you, just in the back of my mind, like, is she really ready for this? I didn't, I, I don't know. But then... Because she's a counselor last yeah, time we see her. You know? <laughs> but in the Deep Space Nine books we had gotten, she had already moved to command. So... That's true. Yeah. It's kind of with the time jump that we get, it does make sense once you kind of read it and realize where we are in history and piece that all together. But uh, it was still, you know, one of those lingering questions I had that I think the novel satisfies for me, though. Now, did you ever have the 2007 Ships of the Line calendar where it has the Crash Columbia on the deserted planet? (laughs) I used to stare at that thing and just like, because you see it's crashed and you see like these crew people, like not from that ship, but from the future maybe you know what where's this what's this derelict ship doing here and they're checking out and david mack takes that and says i'll start a novel with that i thought that was brilliant because like you that had been one of my favorite chips of the line images and just i I can see a writer looking at that and going like "Ooh, there's a story here and i want to tell it and uh, i'm so glad that he did that because that's what i thought every time i looked at it was what's the story the thing that they do by and the Mac does by tying in the end of the Enterprise book Kobayashi Maru, where the Columbia disappears, and then tying it into this um, is genius. 
you know, mm-hmm. and it allows you to really do something fantastically interesting with these characters. Um, and the fact that, you know, um, Aventine is all a part of that and them, them going back to, you know, because in the prologue we talked about the fact that, you know, they, the Defiant had discovered that on their way back from, you know, the episode where Dax's boyfriend kills a whole universe basically or folded universe or something like that you know um, um children yeah, of time everybody it was uh yeah it was odo was it children it. of time okay yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah that's right um my bad uh and so yeah everybody's like you you are on the orb man what what's wrong with you <laughs> um so i think that's fascinating though that they use that and then it makes sense for once she becomes captain and they, they have all of these Borg ships showing up out of the blue in the sense that they're not using any technology that the Federation knows of that they've ever used, like transwarp hubs or anything like that. She connects it with readings that they got from the Columbia when they were able to study it a little bit. And that leading them back to that that famous you know picture, basically, in Ships of the Line is, is great. Uh, and so them trying to suss out the answers of how the Borg are getting into Federation space without transwarp conduits is phenomenal. And, and then that mystery is going to follow all the way through the entire book till we realize where the connections all end up coming. I'm not going to spoil anything, but where all the connections come from, right? You know, um, and how all the pieces actually fall together once it's done. And we have connections as we're talking about to Star Trek Enterprise. So that's another series that weighs heavily in these books. And I think it's just great seeing Captain Hernandez and her crew. I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't get to know all her crew members all that well in the series and stuff, but this one, we really got to see her and the Makos. And I, I just really enjoy that storyline and that character. Yeah. It, it really, th- this is so visual and it feels like something that could have been done as this epic mini series or something. And, uh, to combine those two worlds, you know, the 22nd century and enterprise and the 24th century with the Aventine and the enterprise and that sort of thing, uh, just to see those together and see those storylines play out like this plays like a film in my head while I'm reading it. It's epic. I know that's an overused word, but it really does fit here. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, with the, the NXO two, the Columbia, um, and their storyline, it's such a sad storyline. Like, it is heart-wrenching. Um, and, you know, I have to say, the Makos on that ship are just kind of a bag full of dicks. Yes. I mean, they Thank are you. just awful. Um, and yep. and I, I wanted to ask you guys about that specifically, because it seems slightly out of character to me yes. to have... All of these Makos just be like ready to turn on Hernandez and those that are speaking like sense. Um, that was the one part of the storyline that I would maybe knock a little bit and say, I feel like it feels more plot driven than it does character driven for these characters because I know that, you know. Obviously, Enterprise is all about these characters first learning to get into space. They're learning all the lessons for the first time. But it feels as though they're a little bit 
more de-evolved than I, I think that they would be, even from what we saw on Enterprise, you know, like, um, especially by the time period that they're supposed to be in. I mean, they're pa- like Enterprise has gotten back. They've saved the Zindi. You know, they've helped put to this fledgling, you know, uh, uh coalition of planets together you know um and it's right before the romulan war so it just feels a little bit like um these characters would would be better people than this i don't know am i am i off base on that i no i agree with you and and for anybody you know if you're listening and you don't want to get too spoiled i mean we're we're going into spoiler stuff here really soon if Mm -hmm. not right now but uh, the thing about it and is now and now the thing about it, I had the same thing, especially when we get later in the book where they decide to basically form their mutiny and there was an intent that they were going to kill Hernandez. Yes. I'm like, how and dare I, you kill Hernandez? I didn't really feel like there was a reason. And they didn't. The decision was made not to. But mm-hmm. there the was that was in the plan was to capture her and, you know, tie her up and then kill her and run off to go, you know, take down the, the field and all that stuff that they were trying to do, get back to the ship. And it's like they, there was no reason to kill her. And they mm-hmm. didn't. So I, 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 I did go back and read some of the book earlier. There's earlier scenes when they're still on the Columbia and there's Mako officers, Foil and and uh, uh, Pembleton are talking as they're playing some basketball about, you know, I don't know if what she's doing is right. I don't know if she's really a good commander. So they're having their doubts earlier in the book, but I didn't really remember that when we got further in the book. So I think that helps it a little, but still it just seems too far gone. You know, it's like, there's just that it was like too quick. Like I didn't feel like they did anything to try to convince her and try harder to have her make another decision. They just said, well, if she doesn't know what she's doing, we're taking over. So I have a, a theory. I, I've always held this theory about people who commit heinous acts like that and, and that sort of thing. Especially, and I think this really applies to the Makos, especially Foyle, who I think is a very charismatic leader. And, you know, these soldiers are going to follow his commands and he's, you know, pretty horrible person. I, I really feel like everything they do is born out of fear. And like someone like Hernandez and her crew that are willing to accept the situation for the greater good, they're the braver ones. Like they're willing to make sacrifices because they don't want to see Earth retaliated against and that sort of thing. But Foyle, everything he does with the exception of sparing Hernandez's life is done out of fear. And it it just like that just strikes me through the whole thing. They're afraid that Hernandez is going to... Uh, foil their plot somehow they're afraid that they'll never get home to earth you know all this sort of stuff and the one thing that i think was brilliant storytelling because it puts you off guard is when foil doesn't kill hernandez and you kind of in your mind like oh there's some there's some goodness here there's a glimmer of hope and then the very next scene he does which like elicited a literal gasp for me when i read this when he shoots Thayer in the foot and horrendously injures her to get the Kaliar to do his bidding, juxtaposing those two and immediately flipping it around, I just like, it whips my head around and makes me 
shocked, <laughs> like as shocked as I'm sure Greylock was in that situation. Yeah, these are not Starfleet officers. No, <laughs> very much not. The thing, and I think you're you're definitely right in that sense, Dan. Where these the you know he's kind of and for better. I can't lack a better term, but he he seems almost kind of psychopathic a little bit. Like he mm-hmm. he can rationalize doing all of these things because he feels like it's I guess the right thing to do or whatever. Um, and the, but the it's more it, it's not means. even <laughs> yeah he's just justifying everything because he just selfishly it it kind of it's like it's like a, that Star Wars thing like it's all about selfishness you know like it, he only cares about himself and trying to get back home. Because that's what he wants. He doesn't really care about the consequences to that. And so, um, but it just seems like, at least from watching Enterprise and getting to know those Makos on Enterprise, especially through the third season, and even then the way they work with the rest of the crew in the fourth season, uh, these Makos just seem to be like... You know, if you're going to go out on a starship, you got to realize, you know, the possibility of you coming home could be nil, you know, mm-hmm. like that's why I was thinking. too. So, like, it seemed as though psychologically they should have done a better job of, of picking the right people. Um, you know, some people fall through the cracks and can get away with things. But, yeah, that that one that part just seemed a little bit much. And then, too. Going up against the Kaliar just seems stupid anyway. Like, they're so much Agreed. more powerful. <laughs> um, and and even if they were able to get on Columbia, the moment that you beam up to Columbia, you have no more leverage. So mm-hmm. it's not like they even took Thayer with them, you know, uh, and still had the leverage of, oh, we've got her. And if you don't let us go home, you know, we'll kill her. You know, no. So the moment they took that the you are with them. That was their, I think that's what they were trying well, to do. Well, yes, but. that's true, but it just seemed like, again, I think the Kaliar would have been much more willing to have one sacrifice than them be found out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, As we find out in the book when, you know, yes, millions yeah. of them sacrifice themselves yep. to ensure the Columbia mm-hmm. crew doesn't get killed. Yeah. How crazy is that? They're willing to kill themselves to save the people that are attacking them. Yeah, that was one part that just like blew my mind, but like in in a good way. Like I was, you know, if I was the Mako, you know, the the Mako junior officer who is just kind of like going along with this because my commanding officer said I would feel like crap for the rest of my life because, you know, these people sacrificed themselves by the millions to save my pathetic life who is, you know, doing these horrible things. I hope some of them felt like that. <laughs> what 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 fascinated Dana? What what you said about fear is the exact same thing that lead the Kaliar to do what they do with the Columbia, and both sides of fear lead to the issues that we get. Mm-hmm. And so, in many ways, it's just as much their fault because they won't trust humanity enough to just go their merry way and not saying anything. Um, and which, you know, I mean, we've seen in Star Trek where they've run into a super powered intelligent species that they never tell anybody else about. Um, hell, all of 
Discovery is moot because nobody knows about it. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, uh, they're like 900 years in the future and nobody knows that they ever existed. Um, so it, it was interesting to watch the way everybody's choices play into this. And that, the like you mentioned, that the essence of fear usually leads to chaos because fear leads us to do things that aren't the wisest choices, honestly, if that's what we're making our decisions out of. And so, and everybody pays for it, right? The entire galaxy pays for the fear of humanity and the Kaliar put together. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because the Kaliars, yeah. is, they have the fear of being discovered and that, you know, if they send these crew people back to Earth, then they could alert Earth and Earth's going to come back to the Kaliar and they don't want to, and they have this fear and it's like, you're going to throw them into the other side of the galaxy so they can never go back to Earth or we're just going to keep them here, which we haven't found out yet as to why they wanted to not throw them to the other side of the universe and keep them on their planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one Kaliar individual seems to have kind of pushed them to decide not to, you know, send the Columbia really far away. So what's yeah, that about? Inix, yeah. That was fascinating to me, you know, the Inix character, because he's the one character for the Kaliar who is slightly more Starfleet, right? Like he kind of desires to know other species around them. Um, yeah. As much as the Kaliar's whole goal is their great work, right, which is to contact species outside the galaxy um, that are more advanced than they are, his desire is actually to kind of know the species that maybe aren't as advanced as they are, but are advanced, you know? And so mm. I thought that that was really interesting. And there's, there's, a, there's a thing that's not in him as a Kaliar that is in the rest of the Kaliar, which is that um, they're just kind of stuck up a-holes. Yeah. Right. They kind you of know, make a constant um, allusion to the fact that their faces look like they're condescending all the time. And it's yes, not helped by yes. the way they're talking to them too. <laughs> it, it's uh it's Kaliar resting face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's so, I mean, it it's just so funny because and, and what's fascinating about that is, you know, when you think yourself better than another thing, like just because you're more powerful or you're more advanced technologically or whatever, we always kind of end up seeing that what that leads to in like Star Trek or, you know, any kind of science fiction kind of leads to that. Um, even just just seeing that in, in fiction in general, uh, the movies we watch and stuff. That that thematic element is is huge because that lack of humility is usually what ends up getting you into trouble and what we were talking about, like lead you into then fear of holding on to the power that you have or the prestige that you have. And that's that's what's driving the Kaliar and, and it leads to really bad things for the entire galaxy at large suffers. Mm -hmm. So and even just in this one part of the novel, like the fact that they grossly underestimate the, the Makos and their ability to uh, do things that they would never conceive of because of their morality uh, and the fact that they're able to, you know, get aboard the Columbia and disrupt their great work and ultimately cause the destruction of their homeworld and most of their race. I don't think they woke up that well, they don't sleep. So 
<laughs> I don't think they started that day thinking that, you know, these, this little band of humans they've had captured are going to lead to the downfall of their civilization, let alone what happens later because of everything. And the fact that you're saying, you know, they just think they're all that, I mean, to the point that they make this device, this apparatus that's supposed to reach out to find the most advanced civilizations so they can communicate with them as if all these billions and billions of planets and stuff that they've seen out there aren't just that interesting to them. They're not smart enough. They're not intelligent enough. We need to find the most advanced that we can find out there. Didn't you read the mm-hmm. Kaliar bestseller? You're just not that interesting. <laughs> the Kaliar just not that into you. So, um, the thing that really struck me about them as a, as a race is that their lack of desire to understand what they come across, even in their own universe, and discounting things immediately because it doesn't seem like it's as good as they are. Like, that's a really um, dangerous and damning place to be because then you do underestimate, right? But you also lose the ability just because it it's like nobody becomes a mentor to somebody that's younger than them because they only think they have something to teach and mm. the Kaliar have have become so self-obsessed and self-absorbed that they've lost the ability to function in the sense of like realizing that they could still learn something from somebody who doesn't think like them who doesn't do things like them that's not quote unquote as smart as they are or as advanced as they are and they've they've just kind of like been disregarding people and writing people off and the danger of of putting a label on somebody that says oh you're not advanced enough or you're just not smart enough like that's super dangerous um and you know again that's the thing that leads to their ultimate downfall in this book and in the ultimate suffering in the universe for this entire galaxy, like an entire galaxy is about to suffer because of their self-obsession. And wasn't there a part where they, they, they would specialize, they had certain talents and they abandoned that and moved on to like music and poetry or something. There was something to the fact that they, they could do things and it's almost like they got so good at it that they abandoned it and moved on to something else. Each yeah, they individual. talked about like they didn't have like literature or like uh you know, uh plays or those kind of things because basically I guess they got bored with them. So. Yeah. It was something mm-hmm. like that. I was trying to find that in the book. I can't find it right now, but yeah, that it kind of leads to that. It's like, you know, they even look at their past selves and think they're better. I I really think it's interesting too that they're completely at a loss in this situation mm-hmm. with how to deal with foil and the makos and stuff and it takes yeah. Fernandez saying like guys step aside i've got this like i know how to communicate with this guy and and how to get him to stop because it's just so outside their uh their way of thinking it's it's completely alien to them and i think they kind of finally realize in that last moment that like oh we've got something to learn from this woman i we we don't know how to do this which is really interesting and and again like you said it's a theme that comes up a lot in science fiction C.S. Lewis has a great phrase that I love where he talks about the fact that we have chronological snobbery. Like, just because we're 
at this time and place in the, in in existence that we think we're the the I Ching, like that we have nothing to learn from history, and how dumb that is, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what the Kalar Kaliar have. They they have this chronological snobbery in the sense that they feel like they are just so far above everything else. Uh, they kind of have a god complex, really. Absolutely, yeah. And they're not Q. No, they're not Q. <laughs> But you know what? They have. They really make nice cities. Because honestly, I feel like if I was going to be trapped somewhere, it would be there. Because it just sounds like a paradise city to me. Like it's just so sounds so beautiful, and I could be content to retire there. Do they have Netflix and Disney Plus? <laughs> mm, that's then I'm a good. good. Question. No, they're too mm. good for those. They have PBS. Uh. And and CNN. Um, so I love the idea, though, of like you said, Bruce, the, the the city design and the the world building that Mac does with the KLR is really cool. Um, but I mean, it's definitely not a place that I would want to live because you know they're going to sterilize all the humans. So there's no way to to be able to continue to have I mean, you can have relationships with people right but it's not going to lead to what for human beings is so important which is to be able to have family and continue to grow and like so yeah these these people will be treated well but in the end it's just going to be a super fancy prison yeah, so like a retirement home that's what i'm saying <laughs> kind of like, yeah a little bit like that i guess you know um so i you know it there's a part of where you can kind of understand where this like desperation might come from, from the Makos. But at the same time, it's like, I, I, I'd still rather just be able to live out my life. And, you know, with what you've seen from the Kaliar, like who's like, why wouldn't you think that possibly maybe some of the technology they have, you could live for a really long time. Right. You know, Mm-hmm. So right, and like was said earlier, who looks at that technology and says, "Yeah, I think I can take these guys on." <laughs> yeah, arrogance. Right. Well, let's move on to some other things because we don't want to forget about our friends over on the Enterprise or the Titan. But um, I have to say that it's not that I don't like these storylines, but these are the ones that I had probably the most trouble with or didn't enjoy as much. So for example, with Picard and Crusher on the enterprise, you know, she's pregnant with a baby, you know, with a baby coming, they're starting their family, but he's still hearing the Borg, you know, as we referenced in other novels, he's always hearing the Borg and this is going to be the biggest devastation. The worst is yet to come. And, and all these things, and he's not really quite operating at him as himself. So I'm just curious what you guys thought about Picard in this part of the storyline. I think uh, for me, what it portents is really fascinating because I think at one point in the novel, they say something along the lines of the current losses that Starfleet has taken in the last couple weeks are higher than all of Starfleet's previous wars combined. And yet Picard is saying, like, this is nothing. The apocalypse is still coming. So um, for me, I think there was just that, like, this book and this trilogy as a whole just is not pulling any punches. And I, I know, you know, I think if every novel did, like, 
uh, before Dishonor did, where, you know, the earth is on the brink and everything's going to be destroyed. If that was every single novel, it would be, you know, completely tired by now. But this is really framed as something we've never seen before and losses that we'll never see before. And seeing that through Picard's kind of haunted uh, hearing of the Borg and, and his connection to them, I think was really foreboding for me. That's that's the feeling that I got most reading his part of the book. Sunday, 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 the Borg versus the universe. I mean, that's, I mean, it, Picard calls it, you know, it's the class of clash of civilizations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I didn't have a problem with this part of the story because I felt like you, Dan, where Picard can never tune them out. And because of that, it's almost driving him insane. Mm-hmm. And like an insane person, he just wants the little voice in his head to stop. And so it kind of makes sense, I think, how much he struggles in this this series. Uh, and, you know, there's possible relief maybe at the end of this series for Picard, once and for all, when it comes to this this enemy. And I think... But the problem is, is where he is now, he cannot see that happening. There's mm-hmm. no way anybody could see what's going to happen by the end of this series happening. Yeah. And, and like uh, he or says, predict it. Yeah. yeah and, and like he points out, the Borg have nigh on infinite resources, at least when compared with the Federation. Like the Federation is nothing to what the, the Borg can marshal against them. And he sees this and he knows it's coming. And so... You know, Crusher notes he kind of goes back and forth between being despondent about the future of humanity in the Federation and, you know, being motivated to do something about it. He'll fight to the end, but as of right now, like you said, he knows there's no coming back from this. Like, as far as he knows, he can't see that ending. He basically thinks everything's going to be gone in a couple weeks. And how we know these books are going to play out, that's a very important element. That's needed in this book, and it's needed mm-hmm. in the Picard character. The only reason that this is my least favorite part, and it's not that it's not well written, it's just for me, I'm tired of Picard and the Borg because we've read them <laughs> yeah. in so many novels. Oh, yeah. Yep. If those I novels do get that. hadn't, yeah, it's just, yeah, and, and honestly. See, if you had had those Deep Space Nine books instead of Resistance and Before Dishonor <laughs> and yada, 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 you would have been fine. I would have been fine. Give me Seven of Nine or something. Even. I, I don't know. It, and that's one thing I'm a little hesitant with Star Trek Picard because we're seeing, you know, Borg and Picard in this series coming up that we haven't seen yet. And I was just like, okay, is this more about Picard and the Borg? And I'm just kind of getting over it. But outside Reunited of that, and it feels so good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <it> <laughs> Welcome to Slow Jams with Picard and the Borg. <laughs> you know, it's never a literary treks with Matt Rushing if he's not singing. So you need exactly. that. Always You're welcome. Need that. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, we have also on the Titan. We're dealing with Troy. And another baby situation, but she's having a hard time having a baby. She's had some miscarriages, and in this case, and we got some of that ingrained in the sum. And in this case, she loses the baby, doesn't want to remove the baby. Doctor Rhee is trying to uh, convince her 
that it would be healthy for her to remove the fetus or the baby from her. And she refuses. And Riker is right there with her saying, hey, if that's what she wants, then leave her alone. And Vale steps in and Vale thinks, you know, this can affect command decisions or missions with Troy. And Troy shouldn't be doing all these things. She needs to be taking care of her health. You know, amongst all the stuff that's going on, this seemed just like, oh my gosh, like just like uh, family devastation, marriage counseling issues that I did not really want to get into with this book. (laughs) It's an interesting storyline. And I think, you know, part of it is maybe meant to remind us, you know, with Picard and Crusher and Troy and Riker here, this is what humanity is fighting for, like the ability to be able to continue, you know, Um, and Mm -hmm. the struggle of that is difficult. Now, with with Riker and Troy, I thought it was interesting because it actually the the storyline that made this part the most interesting was what happened between I thought between Riker and Vale and the Mm -hmm. conundrum that it put Vale in. Um, but the way that it it led to a moment for Riker and Vale that's very on the edge, like we're getting into like affair type territory where emotions are starting to maybe get a little too, too close between first officer and, and captain. Um, and part of that is because the difficulty of sharing intimate secrets about your life with somebody of the opposite sex that's attractive and like they have that moment it's like oh man that's so dangerous what's happening and they even kind of realize it you know um and to me that that created a a, um interesting kind of dynamic to be able to you know look at throughout maybe the rest of the series um but again this is the struggle of having then families on starships you know and you have to you have family drama, you know, especially when one of them's the captain and the other one's, you know, um, the uh, a counselor and, and a, a contact specialist. So I didn't love the storyline, but I, I thought there were a couple interesting aspects to it, um, specifically Vale trying to figure out how to navigate it all. As, because as the first officer, she has the job of taking care of the captain, but also taking care of the rest of the crew when things like this are happening. So um, I, I thought the resolution to it's interesting, but mm-hmm. um, this is not my favorite storyline. Um, so, Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the kind of realization that this is what we're fighting for. This is what uh, needs to be preserved. But like you, it wasn't my favorite either. And I, I remember reading this this second time around. I had completely forgotten about a lot of this. Uh, the one aspect I thought was interesting just from a continuity um, standpoint was tying it back into the season two episode, The Child, with the Eichner radiation that damaged uh, Troy's reproductive organs and, and her mm-hmm. uh, her ova, basically. Um, the, the child she carried that grew to maturity for those who don't remember it really, really quickly, Ian Andrew Troy, uh, that was interesting. Um, the fact that I don't really remember this storyline from when I first read this book, whereas most of the rest of this I'm remembering pretty clearly tells me a lot about how much I enjoyed this story the first time around as well. 
you know, and as we're talking, I think I realized something about why this storyline and the Picard storyline are my least favorite. It's not that I don't like them. They're just my least favorite parts of the book. And I think it's because David Mack does such a great job with all the characters in this book that there's so many characters in here we don't know that well. Ezri Dax we had one season with, and we're getting further characterizations of Ezri Dax as a captain. We're learning about all these other characters, Hernandez, and so on and so forth, that when I get to Picard and Crusher and Troy and Riker, I'm like, eh, they're old hat. Like I'm, you know, I'm really enjoying the new ones, like getting to know these characters. And like where you were saying, Matt, about Vale, Vale's my favorite part of the storyline because I like learning more about Vale and, and watching that character bloom and, and develop. And I'm really getting into that where I've known these other characters for such a long time and read so many novels and seen movies and TV shows with them that they were just like too familiar. And I was getting more excited in these other characters that were new to me. And I think that had something to do with it, too. Hmm. Well, and I mean, this is a storyline, too. When you think about this, like you said, this started in Greater Than the Sum. uh, And the Picard storyline with the Borg has been going on forever, you know. And so those two things kind of feel not quite as exciting as everything else that's happening. But what what's great is that I know, you know, with the other two books, they come to a good conclusion like it it becomes worth the ride um so that's a that's i think that's the best part of the story is that anything that we kind of have some of our criticisms or whatever about like knowing what comes from from this story it it ends up in a place that it's it's worth the journey that we are on even if certain aspects of it here at the beginning aren't necessarily like you said, Bruce, it's not like we don't, we don't like we hate it or whatever, but um, it's maybe not necessarily our favorite and that's okay because there's so many other things to choose from in the story, which is great. Yeah. I mean, these books are so dense. There's so much going on. And I mean, there's a lot of things that we're going to miss in this discussion because there's just so much, in here. One thing I do want to point out is, you know, we're talking about DS9, but Voyager really isn't in this book very much. There's a mention about Seven of Nine getting her involved in this, but we don't see her. It's just one line about her. But then there is a scene, there's two scenes. One scene where we have Admiral Owen Paris. He's on Starbase 234, and it's being attacked by the Borg, and he's desperate to get a message out. Because he knows he's going to die. He knows the station is going to be destroyed. And he wants to get a message out to his son, to Tom. And we see a later scene where Tom receives that message. And I felt like these two scenes were good for this book because it does show what we're talking about, what it's like to have families on starships. And this is also kind of that, you know, you have families out there that are fighting, they're getting attacked by Borg, and they're going to die and not be with their families and this is all devastating and we're wrapping something up between owen paris and tom paris that we hadn't got before and david mack made the decision to kill owen paris imagine that david mack decided to kill someone and (laughs) (laughs) and i thought it was good that we got this last scene of tom getting his message it wasn't necessary for this book 
it's kind of I felt like it was put in there because well it'd be nice to have something Voyager in here, but it was it was a nice little wrap up for those two for me. I think it it serves another purpose as well, and and they could have done it with any other characters i guess you know it's just the decision was made to use these characters and and voyager characters but i think it brings down to the the human level the devastation and and like you said the the destruction and the attacks by the borg and showing that kind of human level of this whereas you know we get mentions of planets being wiped out and twenty thousand people surviving out of a population of a billion and all this sort of stuff but those are all just kind of statistics. So bringing it down to this level with characters that we've spent a little bit of time with and know something about, like I'm, I'm doing a rewatch of Voyager right now. And, and it's surprising me how often Owen Paris shows up in Voyager. I kind of forgot that he's there a lot during season six and seven kind of thing. So, you know, we get to know these characters a lot and to see that, that familial connection be shattered like this, especially given all the, Uh, emotional baggage they've had up to this point as well i think uh, really puts into focus the um the micro level of this macro event if that makes sense this is the part of the story i felt like in many ways had the most heart Mm -hmm. you know we're talking about these stories like this moment for tom paris and and i think my views on Voyager or Legendary on Trek FM. I don't really like Voyager all that much. Um, it, it's it's a very messy show. Um, but there were some characters in Voyager which I absolutely adored, and one of them is Tom Paris. You know, he, as a character, I think he's he's a bit like the Chandler of Voyager in the sense that, like, he's the character that grows the most throughout the series so that by the end, he is a completely different character and has the most complete arc of any of the characters on Voyager and to see him in this moment here after everything that he's been through with his father and the, f- the frustrations they've had that, that message that he gets from his dad is so heartbreaking. And when he realizes his father's dead and it just breaks him again. And this is the point in the story too, like, you, you know, where Balan is gone and Muriel is gone, you know, they're on Borath, I think still, yeah, which is a correctly. connection to the Voyager novels. Yes. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Tom is alone and he's facing this alone. And it's just the fact that his father says to him how much he loves him and how proud of him. Like, you know, just as any son would, that's exactly what you would want to hear from your dad. I love you and I'm so proud of you. And I'm so sorry that these things happen. And I said these things like that's what you would want to have happen. And to me, that's the moment that it's like David Mack just pulled out all the stops to pull on your heartstrings to really kind of show you through them what this devastation is like. And that you could really get the impact of it because they're two characters that you know really well and therefore are going to have that emotional gut punch. Whereas, you know, maybe other characters here throughout the series that might we kind of know tangentially because they've been in the books for a while and they might lose people. Spoiler alert. Uh, you know, it th- that doesn't have as much of an emotional impact because you don't know them as well. Whereas this is Tom Paris and you know, mm-hmm. you know him and, th- and you know the struggles he's been through with his dad and their relationship. And this kind of just puts unfortunate nail in the coffin for that story in the most heart wrenching way. Absolutely. And it shows so much power because it's just two brief scenes and we're talking about it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. very like it's 0.01% of this book, but yeah, it's something that resonates with uh, people who like Matt says, love Tom Paris and that relationship and know, you know, what this means to that character. It really puts into sharp focus the sense of loss in a very personal way. Yes. So that takes us towards the end of book one. So the Enterprise, it's fighting with transphasic torpedoes and time is running out. They're fighting the Borg and the Azur Nebula. So that's going on. We've got uh, the Aventine fighting the Borg. They go to a Nebula with the uh, with the Kaliar and there's just a lot going on here at the end of the book. I'm just, the thing that stands out to me the most is what happens to the Mako officers on the Columbia and then how they're trying to escape the Kaliar and the Kaliar are leaving their doom planet in these cities. And that sparks the whole thing that we see later with the Columbia crash landing on the planet and that these Mako officers and the other officers on the Columbia as they're going through these whatever trans warp type fields or tunnels or whatever it is, time phased fields or whatever I'm trying to say, <laughs> they like start to dissolve. They actually remind me of Endgame from Avengers That's Endgame. That's exactly they what I was picturing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny it's when just... we first read this novel years ago, we didn't have that image, but that's exactly how I pictured it this time. It sounded like that, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. It just turned into dust and just go away, except for the one Kaliar member on that ship. Mm-hmm. Um, Which we'll, we'll learn more about uh, what they're made up of and why that is in a future book. <laughs> yeah, and this character is tied into a mystery we haven't really talked that much about, but there were uh, crew members of the Aventine that were getting that were murdered when mm-hmm. investigating the Columbia, and this character has a connection to that. So what did you guys think of how the book was wrapping up to lead us into the next two books? Well, for me, I think uh, the the very end of the novel, like, so, yeah, we've got uh, basically the Aventine and the Enterprise are coming together because the Aventine's gone through this, this corridor or tunnel. Uh, and, you know, in 200 years, Starfleet has shored up its shield so they can survive it without being... Uh, Thanos snapped away, I guess. And, exactly. uh, and they arrive in the Azure Nebula because of this Kaliar stowaway that was, or not stowaway, but the hostage of the Makos that, that was on the crashed Columbia. And uh, their kind of story ends when they get a distress call from the Enterprise because they've just engaged the Borg and they're kind of in that same area now. But to me, the the really interesting one is Titan, who is, you know, they found this kind of artificial star system and they investigate. Kind of like a Dyson sphere. Yeah, there's kind of like a smaller Dyson sphere that seems to be surrounding the star and then an even smaller one surrounding a planet. And they're kind of seemingly invited in. There's this opening that opens up and they take a shuttle with an away team um, and they go down to the planet and they meet somebody who looks somewhat familiar, but kind of a younger version of herself. And it turns out to be Captain Hernandez who welcomes them to new Aragal. So the Kaliar homeworld was called Aragal. And apparently this is now new Aragal. So that was an interesting ending to me. And obviously I've read these before. So, you know, I know how it all links up, but at this point, you know, my brain would be racing. Like, how does this all relate? 
How did they come to be there? What's going on? Alistair Ninja is still alive. Exactly. 200 years later. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I have a question for you guys. Um, What happened to like a blade of armor from the end of Voyager and those kind of things? You know, I know they brought back transphasic torpedoes, but you know, what happened to all the other toys that they used (laughs) to fight the Borg? Because I feel like, you know, Voyager did a pretty good job and seems like that would have been smart to add all the ships since Voyager came home. Didn't they even remove those from Voyager? Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. I, which, uh, so what, what, why? Did they, now, do I remember them covering this a little bit in um, uh, the Department of Temporal Investigations novels? Where I think Starfleet said, no, we want to keep the transphasic torpedoes. And they're like, oh, okay, fine. But all the rest of it, you can't kind of thing. Or am I misremembering? Oh, yes. Or does it go to the temporal, you know. To the vault, maybe? Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. I think you're right. I I remember something like that. I I need to reread those again now, too. (laughs) Okay, let's do that right now. Let's read those. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is a good ending. Like you said, the fact that, you know, Captain Hernandez shows up looking probably better than she did back then. You know, she looks young and vibrant and beautiful is a complete shocker when you, you know, know what they've been through. Um, so, uh, and the story behind that is just going to get even more intense for all of these characters. And, you know, if you thought David Mack was, you know, putting characters through the ringer, uh, well, hold on to your butts. <laughs> but, but, but baby, you just ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> it's exactly it, Dan. It's exactly it. So, um. Yeah, man, this is, uh, it's just a, it's a really strong story. I remember reading it the first time and just being blown away. And then, you know, having to wait was so frustrating. Um, So, whereas I didn't have to wait at all this time, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the beauty of this is the plan is David Mack is going to come on the last episode when we get to book three. If all works out in scheduling and everything, he's agreed to do that. So we can really pick his brain on some of these things. So I'm really excited about that. So what are our ratings, Matt? What do you think? I'm going to guess that it's going to be a high rating from you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that this is probably four out of five, you know, uh, broken down NXO2s, you know, it's it's a really great start to the series. I don't think it's the, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think it's the best book in the series, uh, in the trilogy, but it's such a good start. And and I think um, it's, it's four because there were a couple things in the reread, like we talked about, that just kind of like didn't hit me quite as well as they did before. But still so much of this works. And going back to read this, I was reminded about how good the Star Trek books were. You know, um, at this point of Star Trek books, we are firing on all cylinders and it's just so good. And it, it just reminded me of the things that I loved about 
Star Trek, you know, and it was nice because, you know, I'm not been a person who's really enjoyed Discovery. And so um, being back in this series has just been a wonderful experience with these characters. And, even you know, even just having read um, Collateral Damage was the same experience, you know, like, oh, I'm back in this universe that I love and with the characters I love. So, uh, you know, and having Esri be a captain, I mean, I'll give it four and a half out of five. Yeah. So four and a half out of five. Nice. Yeah. uh, I, I have to agree. I love this novel. I remember when it first came out, it just grabbing me. And, and like you said, I just could not wait for that next book and it was almost torture. Uh, This is an incredible start to the series. It's, It's kind of, it's a little hard to rate on its own outside of the rest of the trilogy. Like it's the, like we've said, there's so much packed into this novel, but at the same time, it's also slow playing some things because it's going to continue throughout the trilogy. So it's kind of got that weird dichotomy to it. But as far as, uh, as far as being entertained and being stoked for the rest of the trilogy, this book really did it for me. So I think I have to give it like 4.75, like almost a five, uh, mysterious blue flashes that turn out to be pretty dangerous if you get too close. Well, yeah, you know, I'm, I just have to say that I have to rate this book with the whole trilogy. I, I don't think I can rate each book individually. I'm just looking at it as a whole trilogy. And I I can tell you for the next couple episodes, you're going to hear me say five out of five. So I'm going to give this five <laughs> out of five. And one reason I'm doing that is because when I give something five out of five, that means the first time I read the book, if I put it down and go, dang, I want to read that again someday that that's what i thought about this trilogy and i'm not disappointed so i mean i had a little issue so maybe it's a week five out of five but i'm gonna give it five out of five makos that are jerks <laughs> well five out of five of them were so <laughs> <laughs> exactly. they're all in the book people <laughs> oh well matt's been great having you well, thanks for having me back on. It it has been really fun. Um, I, as we were talking about on the other side of the page, that um, you know, I don't talk a ton of Star Trek with people these days. Um, but it was really fun to get on and get a chance to talk Star Trek with you guys, and and in a series that's just so beloved. I think that pretty much anybody you would ask about Star Trek books, like this is the one that stands out the most. Um, And I think it's maybe just because it's the most epic thing that Star Trek books had ever done. And it's honestly maybe the most epic thing that Star Trek has ever done. I mean, apart from the Dominion War, I can't think of anything else more epic in Star Trek. Um I don't know. Maybe I I could be completely off about that. People will probably tweet me. You can do that at uh, Matt Rushing Zero Two. I'm trying to think. <laughs> yeah. I can't uh, think of right now. So uh, I'm also on Instagram, Letterbox, and Vero under that name too. Um, I'm here on the network every once in a while when Chris Jones and I can record. We're talking about Star Trek: Deep Space Nine and the Orb. Uh, I do two shows on the Nerd Party Network. One is called Owl Post. I do that with Drea Kaufman. That's a books podcast because we're talking about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. And then, uh, you know, I uh, also do uh, aggressive negotiations over there with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. Now, it's not a news show or anything. We 
just talk about a Star Wars topic that we've been thinking about. Um, and of course, here on the network, I do the 602 Club, which is the general geek show uh, talking about all of the fandoms that we love that are not Star Trek because, well, we have enough Star Trek shows. So we need a place to talk about other shows that we love and other movies that we love. And then last but not least, I talk uh, about films, but I do that through the lens of faith with my good friend Courtney. And I do that on a show called Cinema Stories. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, it, it feels like old times, and that's a good thing. It does. It does. Yes. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a blast. Well, we're finally at Star Trek Destiny, and we've done a third of it now. It's, you know, when we first started out on this mission to kind of read all of the uh, post-Nemesis books, starting with A Time To, I, I didn't really picture finally getting to this moment and it's really cool to finally be here yeah because last year we did a time too and then we decided well yeah let's keep going and do the rest of these post nemesis novels and i remember just kind of planning it out like you know we'll hit a novel each month or whatever and it took us to this point it's like oh my gosh we can end the year with destiny. Now, typically we've done the books where, you know, we do it on a post nemesis book on an episode. Then we do some other things and we go back to post nemesis. In this case, we're not going to jump to another book and come back to book two later. We're going to hit the next, you know, this episode and the next two as book one, two, and three, all in order and all together. So you can listen to it all at once if you want to. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned. If you're listening to me saying this now, you've already listened to this episode. You're not saving it for later. (laughs) Exactly. But stay tuned in just one week. If you're listening to this when it's released, we'll be uh, jumping into book two, like you said. So we're going to get through these three really quickly right in a row. Um, I'm excited, but I'm also kind of sad that it's going to be over. Oh, but there's more books. There's other books to read. Is there, are there more Star Trek books? I thought we covered them all by now. There's a few. There's just a few more. Okay. All right. Well, well I'll stick yeah. around and, and cover a few more then, I guess. Well, it's been fun talking about the few more books that Dan's going to read today, but this isn't the <laughs> only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. But good discussion. Like, I love... <laughs> You know, talking about the science and Joe, I love that you bring it up. Justin, I need to stop reading it. I'm sorry. I'm closing, doing Close my the final window. thoughts, Close and the you're window, all Justin. laughing over me. Joe, you need to keep all of this, this in. Is a, this is an intervention, Justin. <laughs> okay. Close the window. Oh my gosh. Literary Treks. I talked to Bob Klein, who I had interviewed for Saturday Morning Trek. Um, and he's like, yeah, come on over and let's go look through my garage and see what we find. I'm like, okay. So I drive over there and I was greeted to two, you know, those fold out tables that you have for like picnics, two of those end to end with like three boxes, uh, larger than file boxes and uh, like moving boxes size and just papers and folders that all had filmation on it just brought out. Standard orbit. I bought it. I, I, when it first came out, I played it for like two or three days and I went, what is going on? Am I am I missing something? It's, it's just I'm not a good player. So, And then I checked on the reviews online and everyone agreed that it was not a good game. And we were all correct. And introducing our newest show, The Line. <laughs> 
a Star Trek Picard podcast. I, I'm so honored that I was chosen to pick Picard. And as a Next Generation fan, I mean, he was one of my favorite characters. And so I wanted to, and I know how he is extra special to lots of Star Trek fans beyond even just being the character he played on the, on the series. And so I really felt a huge responsibility to try to give the fans something that that was enjoyable but and, and honored who he was, even though it was staying true to the fact that he is 20 years older. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen to podcasts through Apple, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please, we would love it if you would leave us a star rating and written review. Let us know what you think of the work we're doing here. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of Trek FM's shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you will join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash TrekFM. <clears throat> We'd love to hear your thoughts on today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to me and Bruce. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Mutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and the new associate producer of Literary Tracks, Casey Pettit. Thank you, Casey. Yay. Thank you for your support. (laughs) And thank you for sitting through all this silliness to get to this point. (laughs) And so we do appreciate your support. And we love having you as associate producer on Literary Tracks. And we thank all of our associate producers as well. So, Dan, when you're not 
under a tree on some distant planet trying to decide if you should walk across the ripple of the pool in front of you and try to get off of the planet onto the Columbia. Where can people find you? Well, you can find me certainly not doing anything those nasty Makos tell me to do. Those guys are jerks. Um, but you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I talk about Star Trek on my YouTube channel there. Uh, you can also find me on Tricklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And of course, you can find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference. And Bruce, when you're not investigating a 200-year-old wrecked starship on a distant planet in the Gamma Quadrant, battling sandstorms and mysterious blue flashes, where can we find you? I hate sand. It gets everywhere. But you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge when a new episode of Discovery comes out. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, you can always find me lurking around the Babel Conference. I just want to thank everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.